Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for being here. I believe today's episode has something to offer to everyone. I don't know anyone who doesn't have some sort of compulsive behavior, whether it's drinking too much or snacking too much or just doom scrolling through your phone. If that applies to you, Dr. Anna Lemke has written a book about how we all got in the predicament we're in and how we all get out of it. Stay tuned for that. First, a real quick reminder, The Deuce with Jesse May Peluso, our weekly podcast. We're up to episode 10, 10 solid hours of Jesse May Peluso talking about John Stamos, Brad Pitt, and making fun of my choices for lunch. Join us exclusively at patreon.com slash the deuce podcast, patreon.com slash the deuce podcast. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from my nine-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a psychiatrist, the medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford University, and the author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Hello and welcome, Dr. Anna Lemke. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for, for joining me. This book is, well, it's it's timely for me. It's a subject I've been thinking about in my personal life, a reason I'll get into in, in a second. Real quick, I do want to talk to you about your, your last book. You've written two books about addiction, and while Dopamine Nation is at least partially focuses on addiction, some of us might put, put in air quotes, um, your last was about quote-unquote real addiction, uh, drug dealer, MD, how doctors were duped, patients got hooked, and why it is so hard to stop. How doctors were duped is the part of that that I kind of want to focus on. You are an expert on this. You've testified in front of Congress about this. How much of that were you talking about yourself as a therapist, not understanding the severity of the, of the problem? And how much of that are you talking about the extent to which doctors engaged in behavior doctors shouldn't have engaged in and ought to have known better to engage in. Yeah. So uh, that book was essentially about the ways that over-prescribing opioids in particular for minor and chronic pain conditions led to the current opioid epidemic here in the United States. Also included though in that problem of over-prescribing is the problem of over-prescribing psychotropic medications like benzodiazepines, Xanax, Klonopin, Ativan Valium, et cetera as well as psychiatric medications from antidepressants to mood stabilizers. Um, I was trained uh, in medical school in the 1990s, uh, went into practice here on the faculty in the early 2000s, and I was definitely duped. Um, so I, you know, I, I think I was always a little bit on the skeptical side um, of sort of the miracles of what modern medications could do for people. I was always a little bit on the skeptical side, but still um, did believe that, you know, uh, opioids could be used to, um, you know, treat all different forms of pain. 
with minimal risks. And that was essentially the, the bill of goods that doctors trained in the 1990s and early 2000s were sold. Uh, this idea that as long as you were a doctor prescribing for pain, the patient had a very small chance of getting addicted or even uh, getting de de developing a debilitating dependence on opioids. Likewise, in the psychiatry realm, you know, we, we were duped and continue to, I think, um, be duped around this idea that medications can solve almost any emotional problem um, with, with sort of minimal downsides. Which segues into the topic of your your more recent book, but I just want to ask you one more question. I want to be uh, consistent as as a, a show here. I I don't are you familiar with Dr. Carl Hart and the book Drug Use for Grownups? I had him on the show. I thought he made some compelling cases for an aggressive look at our drug policies. And I don't want to be the guy who has that person on and goes, yeah, 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 absolutely, legalize drugs, and then have you on and go, right, right, right. drugs are bad, drugs are bad. <laughs> I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I feel like a lot of his case is that people get addicted to drugs because they're dealing with other issues. And if we deal with those issues as society more effectively, drug use will, uh, drug abuse will in large part take care of itself. Most of us are able to take drugs, even illegal drugs, and incorporate them into an otherwise productive life. Where would you stand on that? I certainly agree that taking drugs and really using any intoxicants, including, um, you know, reinforcing behaviors like we have so many of now available on the internet, are in part a response to, you know, um, underlying difficulties in our lives, as well as larger societal problems, whether it's poverty, unemployment, um, general loss of purpose and meaning, boredom, all of these things, you know, contextually, environmentally, substantially contribute to, to the, the desire and let's say the need to use drugs and the risk of becoming addicted to drugs. But I also think that one of the biggest risk factors is simple access to highly reinforcing drugs and behavior, which in and of themselves explain addiction without looking for another underlying cause. I think one of the great myths in the field of addiction and mental health care treatment today is that there's always an underlying cause that explains the problem of addiction. When in fact, the drugs themselves matched up with our primitive wiring is sufficient to explain the problem of addiction. Um, and I, I disagree with Carl Hart uh, that, uh, you know, if, if we just solved, let's say, our personal problems or even societal problems um, and continued the current level of access that we have that, you know, people would be able to use in moderation and no one would be addicted. I think even under some kind of utopian version of the world, which by the way, will, will never come to pass, but anyway, even if it were to come to pass, there would still be a subset of individuals who would not be able to use in moderation. That's been true since the beginning of humanity. It's, it's true now. Um, and it's in, increasingly true uh, because there are so many different types of drugs. They're so much more potent. They're so much more ubiquitous. They're so much more available. And so um, I do think that access matters and that um, we have to think about access and the inherent addictive nature of these substances um, and behaviors as we're thinking about how to combat these problems. Human nature is uh, an underlying condition. Right, human nature, and also just the, the, the highly conserved wiring of um, the brain's reward pathways combined with the way that technology has allowed for increased access, potency, quantity, and variety of intoxicants. 
Okay, so moving on to this book, Dopamine Nation. Uh, let's start with the subtitle. Why do you consider this the age of indulgence? Um, it's the age of indulgence because we're now living in a time and place of overwhelming overabundance. All of our basic survival needs have been met and then some. Um, we have access to a greater variety of high potent, highly potent reinforcing drugs and behaviors. Um, and we also have a culture that encourage us, encourages us to use substances and behaviors to change the way we feel instantaneously. And that tells us if we're not feeling good, there must be something wrong with us. The book depicts um, behavior, the anecdotal stuff in it, in such a specific and, and recognizably human way that I think all of us would find it relatable. Um, you, you essentially open the book telling the story of someone that you treated without getting into all the tawdry details, a compulsive masturbator and the device that he constructed to aid in his compulsive behavior. You segue from that into an anecdote about yourself, a chapter from your own life. You're obviously a very smart and well-read person, but you confess that you once be, were compulsively reading what you describe as formulaic, erotic genre novels. How mm -hmm. in your mind are those two stories related and in terms of the larger subject of the book how are they a metaphor for the quote unquote dopamine nation yeah so i was intentionally drawing a parallel between my own attachment to um, romance novels that was accelerated by my e-reader the kindle and eventually progressed to a point where it was interfering with my life which is the essential definition of addiction continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others uh, so I was drawing a parallel between myself and my patient with this severe, obvious uh, sex addiction. Um, and I did that in order to communicate that addiction is not a problem of the other person. It's really a problem that we're all struggling with. Um, it's, it's essentially, we all have the same um, brain wiring uh, that has been conserved over millions of years of evolution that it encourage us to encourages us to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And that's reflexive. And it's really our big gray matter brains that have to inhibit that in some ways. It is reflexive to approach pleasure and avoid pain. Um, and also I wanted to draw a parallel between my patient's masturbation machine and my Kindle or e-reader and all of the other kinds of electronic devices that technology has um, you know, created that in some ways are this incredible boon, but in other ways have this very dark side in the ways that, that we can now access traditional drugs. Uh, there are drugs that didn't exist before, like social media and video games, and that uh, these devices um, um, basically make, make these drugs more accessible and more potent and more, more plentiful, such that we've now all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction. The patient that we're talking about here says something in the book that I found very telling, very relatable. He said, in looking forward to his next time alone with his machine, it's never as good as he imagines mm -hmm. it will be. The anticipation is better than the payoff. This is something I've heard hardcore drug addicts say about the best part of doing cocaine is when the cocaine arrives. But I think everybody's had that experience of you know having one more chip or succumbing to one right. more night of drinking or one more scroll through their phone. Neurologically speaking, what is that? What is that thing that, that makes us want to do the thing that we have demonstrated to ourselves over and over again will not satisfy us? 
Yeah, I think it's really a powerful physiologic drive to restore homeostasis. And the way I describe it in the book is to use the metaphor of a balance. Imagine that in your brain, there's a balance like a teeter-totter in a playground. When we experience pleasure, it tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips another. But the overriding rule governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And the way that the brain restores a level balance is by tipping it an equal and opposite amount to the initial stimulus. So when we, doing, when we do something pleasurable, it tips us out of pleasure. We release dopamine, the brain's reward pathway, uh, the brain's reward neurotransmitter in the, in the reward pathway. And we get that little feeling of euphoria or relaxation or whatever it is. But no sooner have we done that, then our brown brain will start to downregulate our own dopamine transmission, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels. And this is that balance tipping an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. When we're in that state of our balance tip to the side of pain, there's a very strong physiologic drive to want to restore a level balance or what's called homeostasis. And that is that motivation to reach for that drug, whatever it is, piece of chocolate, another YouTube video, a line of cocaine, even though we will get no more pleasure from that, right? It's really then the drive to get out of this painful state. Um, and that's really what, what's going on. And it's a powerful, reflexive physiologic drive that can defy our prior plans. It can be inconsistent with our values in so many ways, be orthogonal to what we're you know, what we had planned on. And yet it's so strong because it's this drive to want to get our, you know, dopamine levels back up to homeostatic levels. Yeah, despite all available evidence, it's just so hard for me to understand this is a personal struggle. All of us is struggling with this to some extent or another with whatever. Everybody's got their something, as they yeah. say. It's just, how 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 can... I... I'm just I'm about to ask the same question for the second time. How can we not how can we not learn? It makes sense. Well, I did that and that was fun. I used to think Las Vegas was the most fun place on earth. It took me a long time to realize, you know what? This was great when you were 23 years old, but I did finally learn that. And yet yeah. I don't know how many times I need to tell myself with, you know, the phone is the most obvious. That's going to be the most relatable um, mm -hmm. the most relatable example here. I, I I don't have that is literally just the same question the second time. You don't need to Well, I mean I mean let me <laughs> yeah. I mean it's a really important one. Um I mean, you know, one of the things to realize too, is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial pleasurable response gets shorter and weaker, but that after response on the pain side gets stronger and longer. Oh, That means with repeated use, we sink further and further into this dopamine deficit state. And potentially that will last long after uh, we've stopped using that, that drug. So, you know, one of the things that was a real revelation to me to understand why it is that people with severe addiction will relapse, even after months of abstaining, even after their lives have gotten so much better, anybody could objectively say they're better off now. Why on earth would they go back? It's because they're walking around with a pleasure pain balance tilted chronically to the side of pain. Every day is a struggle. Now they're using, again, not to get high, but just to get out of this painful state where they're experiencing constant cravings and the universal symptoms of withdrawal. The other thing that I would say is that, um, you know, you, why aren't we learning from these experiences? This pleasure pain balance of the reward pathway can really usurp our ability to learn. So, and there are interesting animal experiments showing that if you pre-treat um, a rat First of all, if you put a rat in a maze, a complex maze that, where there's lots of interesting things to do that they can learn new things, 
you know, there's a running wheel, there's a, you know, a complicated maze to learn. There are other interesting, uh, you know, things they can explore. You will see an arborization or elaboration of dopamine releasing neurons in the reward pathway. In other words, learning is rewarding. It releases dopamine. But if you then pre-treat those animals with methamphetamine and release them in the maze and then look at their brains, there's no additional learning that occurs if they've been pre-treated with methamphetamine. That means that highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, including possibly our phone, actually usurps our ability to learn beyond that. Um, that, that in fact, we, 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 we lose the ability to learn from more modest stimuli in our, in our environment when we're bombarding our reward pathway with these incredibly reinforcing drugs and behaviors. It's sort of a brain virus. Yeah. People have talked about it like that. Like imagine you know, if, if your brain is a computer, then it's a, a virus that takes away choice. So let's talk about this this dopamine high. And again, I guess I'm 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 inclined to focus on more of the mundane, the addictions that I think are are across the board for most adult Americans, and probably not just adult Americans. Sad to say, at this point, like what are we talking about? I've never had a runner's high, but I swim a lot, and I think I know what a swimmer's high is. What is it that's happening? To, okay, I used to smoke, and this is the only thing that I can really compare it to. Is if you go a long time without a cigarette, it's not that you enjoy it, but it's it's satisfying. But when you're out with your friends and you keep on finding an excuse to smoke and smoke and smoke, you get you get the the diminishing returns on an actual neurological level of talking about a relatively, you know, relative to shooting up heroin. What sort of dopamine load or whatever are we talking about from that that time you check your phone when you haven't actually had your hands on it for five or six hours and all your sites are updated and stuff's been happening since you were there last time? <laughs> yeah. So we don't really know. Um, you know, it's it's speculative that we're getting dopamine hits from engaging uh, with our phones. But I mean, I don't think that we need to wait for imaging studies. You, all, you, all you need to do is look around you and see how um, incredibly compulsive uh, the behavior is and everybody's kind of lost in it uh, to realize that it must be pinging you know, the same exact reward pathway. But you know exactly how it's doing it and by how many units above baseline levels, I mean, we really don't know. It probably varies individual to individual too, right? Because there is this drug of choice phenomenon. What's reinforcing for you may not be for me and vice versa. Most intoxicants are reinforcing for most people, even if to varying degrees, but some people don't get, you know, any particular um, dopamine hit from a given intoxicant. For example, for me, caffeine does absolutely nothing at all. I have no reaction. I wish I did at times. And when I hear about other people using it as a stimulant. Um, so, you know, so there is going to be variability there, but in terms of if it's reinforcing, how reinforcing is the phone, we, we really don't know. So on the one hand, there's how the technology or the drug or whatever hijacks your system, but then there's the built-in self and that we all have, you know, compulsive or, or self-defeating behavior. You use another sentence that stuck out to me was you say, we are avoiding ourselves all the time. Hmm. So that's why even if this stuff isn't quote unquote addictive, you can still get addicted to it. What does that mean? Why are we inclined? Why would we want to avoid ourselves all the time? It seems sort of self-evident, I guess, but why? I'm not so bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're not so bad. Thank and you. it's a great, it's a, it's a really actually very interesting philosophical question 
what is this need for non-being? Why is it that we continually to seek to avoid our own thoughts and feelings? Um, I think part of it is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once we get into the habit of distracting ourselves from ourselves, then we're caught up in it. Um, again, probably because it's a dopamine hit. And so we then um, not just become unfamiliar with ourselves, but actually afraid of ourselves um, because to, to unplug from all those devices would force us to have to sort of tolerate maybe some unusual thoughts or some uncomfortable emotions or uh, thoughts related to guilt or our conscience, um, things that maybe we don't want to sit with. Um, not to mention the fact that we're at this point now chasing dopamine uh, with all the things that we listen to and all the things that we watch that we're, uh, we're in that dopamine deficit state because of the constant stimuli. So it might be analogous to being lazy. We all know we should exercise. We all thank ourselves for exercising once we've done it, but we also come to laying on the couch. Turning off your brain is satisfying because having your brain on is work relative to to checking out. It might just be that simple. Um, yeah, I mean, I again, I think it's p partially um, habituation. We, mm -hmm. We're we're because we can continually 24 seven in very potent and alluring ways, distract ourselves, entertain ourselves, et cetera. We are often not taking the opportunity to not do that. And so we, we, we were essentially, you know, becoming strangers to ourselves. Um, I don't know actually that it's true that, that just sitting with our own thoughts is, um, you know, as much work as exercising is it probably is if we're not used to it but I, I but it can be very restful and pleasurable i mean the whole point of meditation practices is that you can get to this space of quietude um just simply observing your own thoughts focusing on the breath and some people will describe meditation as euphoric for them um is actually producing uh you know the, the kinds of things that we seem to be looking for when we're reaching for these feel-good drugs and behaviors. So I, I don't know quite that I would you know, equate it with exercise, which is actually effortful and painful. But then again, once you get into exercise, again, that can be meditative too. So I think there probably is a relationship, but i um, not quite sure what it is. Well, so as I mentioned, this is a subject that I've been sort of thinking about. I'm not looking for uh, free psychiatric advice, but I consider myself sort of a, a perfect lab rat in the last year or so for the phenomenon. I think, and I may be wrong, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. I've gone through some pretty big life changes in the last year or so, and I resolved to really um, be my best self to be able to attack the challenges that I had in front of me. And I was actually surprised myself. I was very successful. Um, hey, and, uh, you know, how diet, exercise, all of that. And then the world started reopening and we were yeah. able to travel again and we were able to see friends. And I was perfectly comfortable with, you know, I'm going to put on a couple of pounds. I'm not going to hit the gym as often. And I'll say yes to the dessert. I'll say yes to the beer. But do you know what I found? I was very, very good at moderating the phone behavior for much of mm. the year. The weird thing about phone addiction, it's the same as sex addiction and food addiction, is it is a thing that's arguably, well, those things are necessary. The phone is arguably necessary for your life, yeah. so it's about learning how to moderate your use yes. of it. I finally really had success with, I use it when it's time for work and it'll still be there on Monday. I have found since I 
led up in other ways, that has come roaring back. In the sense of how you understand neuroscience, does that surprise you? Does that add up at all? Absolutely. So all um, addictive substances and behaviors work on the same reward pathway in fundamentally the same way, which is why we can all experience this phenomenon of cross addiction. So when we're, when I'm counseling patients about giving up one substance, I often recommend that they give up other substances at the same time. For example, if they want to quit using alcohol, I often recommend that they quit smoking as well. Why? Because if they try to quit alcohol, but continue smoking cigarettes, they're going to continue to ping their reward pathway with those little hits of dopamine, which will in turn lead to that craving state or that dopamine deficit state in which they will crave almost anything that's reinforcing for them. So although it sounds harder up front to give up smoking and drinking at the same time, it turns out that there are data showing that people who give up smoking when they give up drinking have more success with staying abstinent from alcohol. So it's not at all a surprise to me that um, as you started to slip with, I guess, food and alcohol, um, it was that much harder for you to stay disciplined with your moderate use uh, of your phone. And again, I saw myself as a bit of a lab rat for the stuff you're talking about in terms of this pleasure-pain relationship that you talk about in the book and that we've already talked about here today. Again, not looking for free therapy, but as I started indulging in things, I had been largely free of anxiety beyond what a normal human being ought to expect as the course of their adult life. Uh, sleeplessness, even depression, I find these things sort of creeping back into yes, my life. And you're right. so you're not surprised by that. No. And this is one of the, the main things I try to teach my patients, my students, other mental health care providers. So many patients will come in seeking help for anxiety and depression, and they will see their substance use, you know, drugs, alcohol, pornography, video games as self-medication or the relief that they get from anxiety and depression. And what I have to work to make them realize is that it is the substance use or the behavior, the behavioral addiction that's actually causing the anxiety and the depression. In the moment, it feels like it's relieving it, but all they're really doing is treating withdrawal from the last dose. Remember the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. So once we've used repeatedly and we've tipped our pleasure pain balance chronically to the side of pain, then we are using in a way just to restore balance and it doesn't get us any further. And it furthermore perpetuates this. I imagine that this is these neuroadaptation gremlins that hop on the pain side of the balance to try to you know, counteract these heavy dopamine hits. And the gremlins never go away. This is something that's really sort of compelling. Once they've been created by exposure to any addictive substance or behavior, they hang around in the wings and they're eager to jump on that balance again. And, and once we've used a substance more than once or repeatedly, more and more gremlins are created again. So we get to a point where we've got enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this, this whole room. So when people come in with anxiety and depression, or you're experiencing more anxiety and depression since you've slipped back, I'm not surprised at all. That's these gremlins hopping up and down on the pain side of your balance, trying to counteract, you know, the things that you're putting on the pleasure side. So although we often feel like, oh, well, I'm feeling bad, I should reach for, you know, something to make me feel better, a cookie or watch, you know, watch a movie on Netflix or, you know, smoke some pot. 
when we do that, all we're doing is, you know, putting more dopamine, more, more gremlins on the, on the pain side of the balance. What we need to do is abstain from those things for long enough for our body to go, Oh, wait a minute. I'm not getting those big hits of dopamine. Now I've just got to start to regenerate my own dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, endo-opioids, endocannabinoids, and then eventually reset to a level balance. And, and they do, and they do get there. So I say, I'm, I really feel like a great lab rat yeah. for this because, because uh, playing dolls with a three-year-old, not always the most pleasant experience. I'm not going to lie, right. but it can be fun. It can be fun. <laughs> yeah. And when your brain gets the idea, Hey buddy, this is as good as today is going to get. So <laughs> that's right. It's amazing. Yeah. It really yeah, is. No, I, yeah. And you put it very, very well as a, you're a lab rat, because I really do proffer this to my patients as an experiment. I say, Hey, you know, let's Let's do an experiment. I know it feels like smoking pot relieves your anxiety, but put it away for a month. You're going to feel worse before you feel better because your brain, your balance is, you're going to be in withdrawal. But if you can just make it to a month, I bet you're going to feel less anxious than you do even after you smoke pot right now. Um, and the vast majority of folks come in, but what it takes is this recognition as you have done with your three-year-old that, wow, I need to do, the, I need to abstain long enough for un, until playing with my three-year-old is actually fun. <laughs> Which takes right? some doing, yeah. It takes some doing. It takes a, a process of elimination of all of these highly reinforcing substances and behaviors that will make playing with my three-year-old seem incredibly boring, right? And that, that's really the key. And also, I also think this brings into the whole idea of values. You know, how can we live consistent with our values? I think any parent would want playing with their three-year-old to be, you know, a source of joy, maybe not every minute of that time, but something that they want to be fully present for. Uh, how, how do you, you know, how do we do that? One of the ways to do that is, is to literally take away other intoxicants until that child's play, you know, raises up to the level of being exciting again. Yeah. I, I, I'm living proof. It is absolutely positively the way that that works. Let's talk a, a little bit. We've touched on it already but phone addiction i don't think there's any doubt whether or not it's been proven it is a thing in your opinion okay i know one person who owns a smartphone that they routinely leave it in their car and then check it every three weeks that person's using their smartphone responsibly arguably doesn't need to own one in the first place other than that <laughs> does anyone does anyone use their smart is it possible to you know like i, I guess smoking is sort of analogous there were my mom would yeah. go out and have a cigarette on a saturday night but the vast majority of people who dabbled in smoking became you know smoked more than they wanted to had a, a problem with smoking do you use your smartphone responsibly armed with all of the the techniques and knowledge that you have okay so i think that the uh, the best analogy with the smartphone in the modern world is food that really the, most of us cannot function in our professional lives or maybe potentially in our family lives without a phone. Yes. So that the project really has become how to use in moderation. And I think it's extremely difficult, not impossible, but extremely difficult. I can tell you, I personally don't have, um, uh, let's say a compulsive use of my smartphone for a couple of reasons. I didn't even get a smartphone till a couple of years ago. So I have the whole first two decades of the 21st century 
modeled around not having a phone. So all of those things that people use their phones for, I have other systems uh, that I use. So I'm not dependent on the phone. And I actually find the whole interface incredibly annoying, but I do have one now because I need it to prescribe medicines and I use it uh, to communicate and, and get Uber when I travel. But however, I am totally compulsively attached to my email. So whatever the thing is that's going on for people on their phones, I have the same problem. I'm like, oh, I wake up and I just, I want to check my email. And then all day I'm checking my email and responding to people. So basically it's the same idea. It's just, I I have a much bigger phone. It's a laptop. Um, Now here are the things that I have found to be helpful and everyone's going to find their own things. I think just like intermittent fasting has become a way to manage the, the struggle that many, if not most people have with food overconsumption, that's not a bad way to um, self-bind around phone consumption. So try to, as you did, limit your use to discrete hours during the day, maybe those work hours and try to have wait in the morning and do, you know, the, your morning routine, especially your wellness routine and self and other care routine before you check it a single time. Because once you checked it, once you triggered your reward pathway and you're going to be in a craving state and then have a time at the end of the day where you say, okay, now I'm putting it away. And sometimes having like a physical box that you actually put it into so that you can't get to it can be a, a, a way to help. Um, it sounds like we're talking thing- about gremlins. It's really crazy. Yeah. Objective, if you if you were just visiting from human civilization 25 years ago and overheard this conversation, it's crazy that you just said maybe hide it in a box and everybody listening was like, yeah, that's actually not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Well, it's, it's true. It's very, very hard to moderate consumption. And then I think another important feature is to make sure that you have people and activities that are screen free, yeah. that are rewarding, um, that, you know, that, that, you know, that are enjoyable and rewarding that you can go to, because part of the problem is that we're investing so much time and energy in our online life that our real life actually is becoming less interesting and more impoverished. So really cultivate relationships and activities that embody us, you know, so we're in our bodies, we're moving our bodies, we're interacting with real people in real life, device-free, these kinds of tech-free spaces, I think are really key. And does, is that the same basic advice that you would extend to people who have the same concerns about children? I have that concern about much. My son, his, his interest in video games, you know, handheld video game devices was accelerated by coronavirus and, and lockdown. There's, it was, it was, yeah. it was, I would argue a necessary evil. You know, we say we're the last grownups, people my age say we're the last generation that at least has the A, B experience of we do know the life that you were leading until a couple of years ago. We know what yeah. life we know life is possible without these things. Right. I sometimes feel like I uh, I there there's like a, you know, a wave coming for my children that I can't stop them from because yeah. this is literally all they all they've ever known. Right. Right. How old are your kids besides the three year old? I have a three year old girl and an almost 10 year old boy. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly, you know, coronavirus quarantine was this sort of aberration. On the one hand, many people um, had an opportunity to get more well during this time as you did, you know, things slowed down and people could focus on wellness and health. And that was really good. But of course, online school and all the screen time, you know, that many of our children uh, were were spending was, um, was problematic. I think though with a, you know, a 10 year old, so I generally advise that, that, Children do not have their own devices um, prior to, you know, teenage years. 
and that their time on devices be very carefully monitored and limited. Um, corona, you know, and quarantine blew that out of the water because all our kids had to be on computers in order to do school. But I think it's okay now, now that they're back in, in real life school to, to retrench on that and to go backwards and you know, we're not in quarantine anymore and you don't need this device. And, you know, you can play video games for one hour a week on the weekends after you've finished your chores and your homework. So it, we, you can unwind this, um, especially if you feel and sense that things are not going in a healthy direction for your child. Once kids get to be older, we have very little control, but, but when they're still at the ages of your kids, you do have control. Right. And I would encourage you to exert, exert that control. And then in that time that they're not on their screens and they're bored or whatever, really important to get them, you know, using their bodies out in nature, mm-hmm. um, playing board games, real life negotiations, all of those things that we know are really important skills and also a potential source of joy. I guess, and, and not to be dire or unnecessarily pessimistic, I I just feel like it almost doesn't matter what I what I do. I, I know that I can, um, I know how to predispose my children to stare at a phone for every waking moment. And I'm pretty sure I am taking steps to prevent that. But where where are we, basically, where are we going from here? And, and do you agree that's not a great place? And how do we stop ourselves from going there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't think the metaverse is, is a good solution. I don't think that we should progress toward this virtual reality that is more compelling than the real world and where we, we would spend all our time. I really, really don't. I think that will make us all much less happy and the, we're, the world a much weirder place. So I do think that we individually and collectively have to figure out how to limit and titrate our engagement with this online life. I just think it makes us unhappy. Um, And so I think having these discussions with our kids, I understand this sense of futility and kind of wanting to just throw in the towel and give up, but I encourage you not to do that. I encourage you to to continue to try to create these screen-free spaces in your family, screen-free activities to, to set limits, to talk with your child about why it is that you believe that this is not healthy if taken to an extreme. Um, because, I mean, this is our, our collective project for the foreseeable future. We're, we're going to have to figure this out. And I, we haven't figured it out yet, um, but, but we need to continue to try. Isn't it? Isn't it crazy? It was funny. I was reading your book, and I was thinking of Neil Postman. And shortly after that, you brought mm-hmm. up Neil Postman, the NYU professor who wrote "Amusing Ourselves." It's just—I mean, it's seems so so um, old-fashioned now. It's just television that was amusing us right. to death, and yet the um, the problem has changed. But a lot of his diagnoses seem like they still hold weight. And he was at the time referring to Aldous Huxley. Everyone was afraid of 1984 right. coming, and instead it was going to be the brave new world of everyone seeking um, pleasure all the time. The twist right. that neither he nor Huxley saw coming is that we, it turns out we don't even need pleasure. It would be sort of understandable if we lived in a world where everybody was taking a, a, a safe and healthy ecstasy replacement. Right. You could see why people might make that <laughs> choice. But that's that's not what we have. We're, we're engaging in compulsive behavior that actually makes us unhappier. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, this is this is exactly right. In the moment, it feels like it's the happy escape. But the cumulative effect over time is that we're much less happy. 
And yet we're not identifying true cause and effect. We're, we're looking for all these other reasons, you know, why, why we're unhappy. Um, when in fact, it's like our day-to-day behaviors that are really the source of this unhappiness. And the stakes are, you argue in the book, quite a bit higher than really uh, on the level that we've been discussing thus far, you say, and it struck me at first, but the more I think of it, I guess it adds up. 70% of global deaths, you say, are attributable to modifiable behavior. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the top three reasons that people are dying all over the planet, it's smoking, poor diet, and lack of activity. So we're talking about things like diabetes, heart disease, uh, obesity, um, cigarettes. These are these are the main reasons that that we're now dying. Um, we've managed to sort of insulate ourselves from so many different types of diseases, but now we've reached this tipping point where it's these uh, these modifiable risk factors and behaviors that are the number one contributor to, to our demise. So we're, we're literally killing ourselves, right? We're, we're literally amusing ourselves to death, um, even though it's not, it's not very much fun. And the other huge implication is that we're also destroying our planet in the process. So it's not just that we as individuals are more addicted and less happy. We're also depleting our forests, our fuel sources, our fisheries. Um, so even if you're not interested in abstaining for the purposes of feeling better yourself, you might be interested in abstaining for the purposes of saving the planet. Well, the, the there used to watch the GI Joe cartoon where they used to always say knowing is half the battle. The hard work obviously is, is, is implementing the sorts of things that you're talking about. But in this case, I, I still think that we have not as a society even begun really to have really across the board a reckoning with the the sorts of behavior that we're all almost all of us engaging in and just how destructive it is and your book is the right place for people to uh, at least start to have that reckoning so um thank you for your book and thank you for your time um dr anna lemke the book is called dopamine nation finding balance in the age of indulgence thanks thank you 